Okay, I want to talk about the sayings of Jesus Christ. You know, he talked about commandments and he talked about his word or the word of God and also talked about his sayings. And I think out of that three, you'd almost say that sayings is not all that important. I mean, a commandment is really important. You know, a couple of times Jesus even said, you must. And, uh, and even if you're talking about the word of God and then with a saying, it's just sort of like a throwaway. And I was just he's saying... Well, that's actually not true. The sayings of Jesus Christ are incredibly important. Let's have a look at um, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, just start reading in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of, of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Uh, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I dare say the list in verse 22, you would not say is the work of iniquity. It is the work of God, the work of... But obviously in their life, they weren't living the life. So in other words, you can, like it said in, in, um, in a sense, in First Corinthians 13 about love, that you can do this and you can you know, speak in tongues and you can do miracles, but if you haven't got love, you're wasting your time. So it's obvious from both these scriptures you can do great things in the name of the Lord, but actually not be walking with the Lord as you should be and, and doing the basic and living the life particularly. And then we see in verse 24, very famous part of the Bible. Um, I don't remember much from my Sunday school years, but I do remember this passage. I think if anybody went to Sunday school in any of the particularly orthodox churches, one of the most basic stories they always taught was what we're going to read here. Therefore, verse 24, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be like unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the flood came and the wind blew and beat upon the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So remember in Sunday school sort of do, doing little drawings. I can't remember, not that I'm much of an artist, but sort of the story of building a house on the rock building a house and saying, anybody else back years ago went to Sunday school in an Orthodox church and learnt that? Anybody? Okay, Dot, Dot didn't put a hand up. You didn't go, Dot? Put your hand up. <laughs> Quite a few of the oldies here, very grey heads, all put their hand up. Um, and yet what does it say there in verse, um, verse 24? Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them. So all of a sudden you get the thought, hey, the sayings of Jesus Christ are incredibly important. But you can't do them if you don't know them. And I'm sure when I was just a kid, I had no idea of the sayings of Jesus Christ. So as you might think, well, that's just his sayings are not that important. Here it says you've got to know them, you've got to hear them, and you've got to do them. The guy that built his house on the, on the sand it does say that he heard them. It does say that. In verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, but he doeth them not. 
So there's a lot of people out there that are still hearing the sayings of Jesus. Maybe a lot of Christian people in inverted commas, throughout the world today, they're hearing the sayings, but we know for a fact when you quiz them, they don't do them or they don't want to do them. So the sayings of Jesus Christ are incredibly important that you hear them, and not only do you hear them, but that you know enough of them, as it were, to, yes, let's do them. And then you're starting to build your house upon a rock. Um, Chapter 14 of John We actually have the list of the three things, uh, titles, whatever the word is, three categories is the right word, of what I said before. So John 14, verse 21. So the first one is commandments. Jesus said here, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So, as I said, when you hear the word commandment, hey, I've got to do it. If you're in the forces and the officer gives a commandment or a command, you do it. Because you know that you've got to, in the forces, that's how it is. Verse 23 Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So, verse 21, all important commandments. Verse 23, you've got to listen to my words. Then we see in verse 24, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the fathers which sent me. So it sort of breaks it down into three categories, but all of them are important. But it is interesting, again, that the last one he said was just the sayings of Jesus, but he said, those who don't love me don't keep them. A bit similar to, to what we read there in Matthew. He that keepeth not my sayings, the word is mine and so on. They, love, they don't love the Lord by that. It's a proof, by the way, a simple proof of whether you love Jesus. You can... Talk to the cows, come home, how much you love Jesus in word doesn't ever equal in deed. So it's no good you saying to me or anybody else, oh, I love Jesus. And then we quote Mark 16, verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And you say, oh, I don't think baptism's important. All of a sudden, one of the, I would almost list that in the commandment level, saying, if you, you, I don't mind, it's just as important, you know, but so people, it's easy, lip surface is the word, isn't it, to give lip service of how much you love God. The real test is when you hear the word of God, you're motivated by the word of God that you want to do it. Matthew chapter 4, just have a look at a little, you certainly can't cover them all, but just some of the words of Jesus, sort of thing that we should know and have some idea so that we can keep them. And build our house upon the rock. Talking about commandments, of course, the two biggest commandments uh, are not in the Ten Commandments. They're in other parts of the Old Testament commandment, but not actually in the Ten Commandments, which everybody would say is the most important commandments. One is you've got to love the Lord your God with everything you've got, your heart, your mind, your soul, your being, your whole being. You've got to love God. That's number one. And number two, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. They're in the Old Testament, and he quoted them from the Old Testament, but they're not actually part of the Ten Commandments. So there we see that they're sort of God's commandments, but now New Testament, 
Jesus wanted to say, if you keep these two, you'll keep all the law. So knowing these sort of basic commandments is fundamental to our walk in the Lord, but now we're thinking about many of the other things that he said. So Matthew 4, just there in verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Put this part in here, because I'll just read the other two, which are pretty well known anyhow. Verse 7, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And verse 10, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. So what he's doing here is you could say they're the sayings of Jesus, but they really are the sayings of God. Maybe the, the two great commandments are too, and I think about it. These are the sayings of God, and he's repeating them saying, but God said this and God said that. And, of course, the devil misquoted God, as you'd expect the devil to do, put the wrong slant on it. You should deliberately do something dangerous so that God can protect you. And he said, no, you shouldn't do that. You never do it deliberately. If there's something comes upon you by accident, then we can hopefully lean back on God and he will look after us. In chapter 5, um, just there in verse 16... Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I'm not, not really saying this would be a, a commandment of the Lord. You might just say it's some really good sound advice. But it's certainly one of his sayings. And his saying is here, make sure you don't hide your light. You let it shine. Down there in verse um, 43, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, persecute you. So here's a couple of pretty important sayings of the Lord. Very important. Again, he's sort of looking at it differently from New Testament as they did in the Old Testament. It was actually God that told them to go in and slaughter their enemies, literally, in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, he said, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Like John and James, when they want to call down fire on the Samaritans, the Lord said, no, we don't do that anymore. We're of another spirit. We're not here to kill people. We're here to save people. So again, if you're going to sort of keep the sayings of Jesus, you've got to know these sayings. Think, oh, is that what you do? Is that the way we live? Is that, that's the wisdom of God. Chapter 6, and just in verse 1, uh, Take heed that you do not your arms. So this is the sort of the sermon of, of Jesus on the mount, or part of it. And uh, there's a great list of it, chapter after chapter here. A great list of advice, and do this and don't do that. And, and um, in chapter 6, he talks about the way people do things. Nothing wrong with what they were doing, but it was the way they were doing it that was wrong talks about fasting and giving and, and praying and so there's nothing wrong with those three things but there is a wrong way about going about it chapter 6 verse 1 take heed that you do not your arms or your giving before men to be seen of them otherwise you have no reward of your father in heaven i mean it's the natural sort of instinct of all of us is when we do something good we want to tell others about it so they give us a little thing called a pat on the back oh aren't you good you're such a good person, you gave that, and you're a great fast. Yeah, you're a good person. He said, okay, good, you got your reward, but you won't get any from me, God says, you know. You look for the reward of man, well, you got the reward of man. But he said, when you do something like that, do it as secretly, in a sense, as you can. 
in a sense, almost like the more secretively, just between God and you that you do it, the more God will bless you. And just there in verse 6 um, of verse 5, But when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou shut the door, thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee open. So what the Lord's doing here is he's looking at the way religious people were going on about things that they thought was pleasing to God. But they were starting to really move away from what he meant. He had nothing against people giving. He had nothing against people praying. He had nothing against people fasting. But he's just saying, hey, the way you're going about it is not what I had in mind. So there's good advice to us. Let's, let's do it as often if we do something. Now and again, particularly if you're fasting, hey, people find out about it. But he's saying, don't you know, have a long face and, oh, poor old me, I'm fasting, feel sorry for me. I said, ladies, put on your lipstick. Men, have a shave. I think it's that way around. Well, make sure that uh, you look like you normally do. Don't, don't have a sorrowful face. Don't try to get some sort of old poor old me sort of thing in it. Rejoice in the Lord so that people don't guess. And, of course, he mentions that down there in verse 16. Moreover, when, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure, they disfigure their faces. I disfigure the way to say that. That they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face and put on thy lippy and uh, look good, just like you normally do. Let's have a look at chapter 7. Still part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. So really the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, by the way, details the Sermon on the Mount far more than the other three Gospels. So if you want to get almost every word that he said on the Sermon on the Mount, read from chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 8 when he, he stops. Uh, that is the great Sermon on the Mount, great subjects that he covered. You know, I often regret um, some of the wonderful times when Jesus did talk to people and we don't have a record. Here we do have, you know... And, John said, as we know, in the last couple of verses of the Gospel of John, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said, the world wouldn't be able to contain it. But for me, that's it's sad. I'd love to know what he, he said in times when we don't know. But here we just see in chapter 7, verse 13, very famous part of the Bible, in amongst all these other great, great advice, enter ye in at the straight or the narrow gate, that means, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But narrow is the gate, because that's what the word means, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And the last thing is quite daunting, isn't it, and quite scary. Few there be that find it. So it's not going to be something just anybody can find. And the trouble with Christianity is always wants to lean that way as can we broaden the gate a bit? Can we make it not so restrictive? Can we sort of, you know, have two gates? So it's not just one gate. And can we allow this and allow that? And, and you can bring this through, you know, when you want to come through the, the narrow gate, you can't get the cigarettes through. They just won't fit through. You can't get the bottle of grog through. You can't get your meth uh, addiction through, and I can go on and on. 
Your swearing has to stay on the other side of the gate. But people want to broaden the gate. Oh, we can, we can bring that through, bring that through, bring that through. And you said, the moment you do that, guess what you're on? You're no longer on the straight and narrow path. You're on the broadway that leads to destruction because that's really what you've chosen. I want a broadway, no restrictions. You know, we live in a world today, I don't want to get into politics, but I guess I almost am. It's going extremely left. It's going extremely liberal. And people making huge demands on things that are unscriptural. We want this. We want that. Don't you dare interfere with our life. We want all that. And that is our society. More, I think, than ever before. We live in a world like that. So those who walk with the Lord and talk about things like marriage, you know, uh, and, and I'm talking about normal marriage, things like that and not smoking or drinking or whatever, wow, you really, what? You've got to be joking. Surely nobody does that anymore. Then, of course, we are labelled as, as extreme right. I don't know whether that is extreme right or not, but that's sort of where you would to actually make that sin. Really, it's just extreme, extremely scriptural, and all the people said, because that's the way the Lord wants. And all the people said, that's better. Wake a few of you up. Still hot. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now and again, as it brings out in this chapter, there are a few things of his sayings that are hard to sort of come to grips with. We often turn to this chapter because of that. Uh, Just there in um, verse 47, Very, very, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Well, that's a nice saying. That one's not hard to handle at all. When we're talking about the steps of salvation, we often talk about repent, be baptised, and spirit-filled. We know that none of that works if there's not some belief. Even if it's only a little bit of belief. You start off with belief. That's what Jesus... You've got to believe that I am the Son of God. You might not understand hardly any of it, but a teeny little bit of belief. Because when you get in the baptism tank, it's pretty well the first thing we say to you. Do you believe? They're the first words that we ask you. Do you believe? And then we'll say things like that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that he died uh, on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that he'll fill you with that? And so on. So we're asking that we believe, believe, believe. So belief is incredibly important. Um, you won't get anywhere in Christianity without it. Um, now and again you have people say, oh, I don't believe this, oh, I don't believe in miracles. Okay. You've said that, you don't believe in miracles. Guess what? You'll never see any miracles. Because the only time you ever see miracles is when you believe. Um, so here we go in verse, um, uh, verse uh, 47 I read, just down a little bit further. Uh, verse 54 was the part that they found impossible to believe at the time. Whosoever eat it, Eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So it was just sort of a, what? You've got to be joking. How could that possibly be? They didn't hang around long enough to find out what he meant by that. Nobody, by the way, nobody did literally do that. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, his body, even though it was battered and beaten, it was complete. Nobody had taken a bite out of it. And nobody had literally, well, I can't even say it, but we just know that uh, he, nothing literal happened. Uh, but it did, 
in the sense that when you become a born-again Christian, when you partake of that salvation, you are literally, well, not literally, but you're figuratively eating his body and drinking his blood. That's when we take the communion service, we remember those two things in particular, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So in that sense, but that we know at that particular time, those 70, we think it was, said, look, we can't handle this, and they went back. It's always interesting with the 70. They liked it when the miracles were happening. And Jesus gave them a warning about that. And he said, look, don't just believe me because of the miracles. Believe me because your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Light. Light. Now, later on, this happened and they walked away. The miracles weren't happening. This doesn't sound right. And they were gone. In um, John chapter 9... Anybody like to hazard a guess at how many times Jesus said we must do something? Anybody like to have a hazard a guess? I must admit I was very surprised. Nobody. Nobody even prepared to hazard a guess. Okay, let's say. 16. He only ever said it twice. Isn't that staggering? You can look it up in your encyclopedia or whatever later on and you... He only ever said twice that we must do something. You'd think he would have said it a lot, but he didn't. And the well-known couple are here in John chapter 9, and just there in verse 4. Oh, no, this is not one of them, by the way. This is where he talked about himself. Often he had to do things, and he used the word must. And this is one of them. Uh, John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. So there, he often had a must in his life, and the ones that we very well know, of course, is John 3, John 3, where he was talking to Nicodemus, and uh, just read verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, no man can do those things that to that thou doest except God be with him. Now, the first couple of statements, he doesn't use the word must. Verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Exceedingly powerful, but hasn't got the word must on it. And then in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, he explains himself a bit more what he means, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he says, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So I'm quite glad that he didn't use the word must all that often. Because when he does use it, man, has it got power. The fact that he didn't often say you must do something. So anybody that tries to sidestep being born again, really, you're in trouble. You will not, you'll not, if you're not born of the Spirit and of the, and, of, and of the water, referring to water baptism, if you haven't done these things, you're in trouble as far as God's concerned because you must be born again. There's no, no, no argument in there. When somebody says you must do something, all argument is gone. In chapter 4, again talking about the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said it again, talking to the woman at the well, in John 4, verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipper shall, wor- shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the Spirit. And then he says, And they that worship him must worship him in the spirit and in truth. 
So that's how important speaking in tongues is. People say, oh, speaking in tongues is not that important. He says you must do it. You haven't got any choice. Because when you pray in the Spirit, we know that you're speaking in tongues. Because the Apostle Paul explained that in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We talked about praying in the understanding, natural mind, and praying in the Spirit. And he was talking about, spirit, about speaking in tongues. The whole chapter's pretty well about speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, you can check up on it later. Most of us know it anyhow. So when he says here in verse 24... There's another way I could rephrase and I shouldn't because it's the word of God. But verse 24 really says you must speak in tongues because that's what he was talking about. You must speak in tongues. That is the only way to worship God in the spirit. I'll read it again though. As it is here, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and of course in truth. You know, the first scripture we read today about how they cast out devils and they did that. And he said, you're workers of iniquity. They'd forgotten the truth part. They got the miracle part, but they got the truth. You've got to do it according to the word. Um, let's have a look at Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Now, because I'm giving a talk on the sayings of Jesus, I, ha I am forbidden from quoting other parts of the Bible because I'm talking about the sayings of Jesus. And I'd love to quote Acts 2 verse 37 to 38, but I'm not allowed to today because I'm talking about the sayings of Jesus, not the sayings of the Apostle Paul, Peter in that case. Um, but I'm going to get around it because I'm going to find scriptures in the gospel that says exactly the same thing. So number one, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. We've already talked about belief, but he says here, in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. So number one, repent. Now let's go to a scripture I've already quoted. Mark 16. It's always a very special part of the Bible for me. It was the first scripture that I ever had shown to me by a spirit-filled person, the person who witnessed to us, the wonderful um, uh, Mark 16, the, the most contentious passage in the Bible most probably, how often people try to do anything to get rid of Mark 16 because it is so blunt. Although they don't seem to object to verse 15, it's verse 16 onwards that they object to. So number f verse 15 is one of the great sayings of Jesus and is in the category of what we're talking about. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There is a definite saying, directive, commandment. I don't, what, I don't mind what you put on that. But then he said in verse 16, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So there's two very... He went on to talk about signs and wonders and miracles and so on, but in the context of what I'm talking about today, first of all, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, he said, Repent. Mark 16, verse 16, Be baptised. You see where I'm going here? Repent, be baptised. Now, what's the next one? Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter 24. So it's all in the Gospels, what Peter said. But I'm grabbing it from three different spots. So Luke chapter um, 24, just one verse, verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, 
but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endured with power from on high, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you could almost say Acts 2 verse 37, 30, there it is in the Gospels, three different parts. Jesus said, he said, we need to repent. He said we need to be baptised. He said we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all the people said, it's all there, whichever way you go about it. Um, I'm going to quote the book of Acts because there's a little bit in the book of Acts that are the words or the sayings of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 1, I mean. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. So we do have some of the words of Jesus here. A little bit in the Gospels, but really not quite as detailed as it is here where the uh, man Luke again we just read from some of the writings of Luke in the gospel of Luke now he said here in verse 4 being assembled together with them that's Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the father which saith he you've heard of me now I'm going to be a bit naughty again and I'm going to almost say what I said before you know what Jesus said I'm going to said in verse 4, he assembled together with them and commanded them to speak in tongues. Because that's what he's talking about. Because he knew that when the Holy Spirit did come, they would speak in tongues. He doesn't put those words there, of course. But he said, don't you go anywhere until you get the Holy Ghost. Don't go and try and be a Christian. Make sure you start off with this. John truly baptised with water but you shall be baptised with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, being assembled together with them, that was just 10 days before. That was when he ascended up to heaven, 500 of them on a mountain, witnessed the event we call the ascension. Jesus, 40 days he'd appeared. He'd been in the grave for three days and three nights. He Then he appeared for 40 days, so we're 43 days away from the Passover. He died on the Passover day. He was the Passover lamb. 43 days later, he's on a mountain, and this is what he said. Don't leave. They didn't know how long it was going to be. could have been 10 years for all they knew. He didn't give a time. He just said, you wait. You just stay here till you get it. And then in front of everybody's eyes, he ascended up into heaven. And seven days later, three plus 40 is 43. Another seven makes 50. Pentecost is 50 days from Passover. So seven days later, good number seven, seven days later on the day of Pentecost, it all happened as he said it would. I'm not allowed to read that today because I'm only talking about the sayings of Jesus. You'll have to read that later. But verse seven, we've got some more of what he said. It is not for you to know the times and seasons. He said, don't bother yourselves too much about how it's all going to come together. The most important thing is what he says in verse eight. Now, by the way, this is the only part that the detail of being filled with the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus. He said it, but it's only in Luke who records what he said in verse 8. Be there, sorry, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and, un, and, and in Samaria, and even Elizabeth, the uttermost part of the earth most probably we almost are so that's that, that that verse is not in the other gospels or any of the gospels so the detail of what jesus said and he said that 10 days before pentecost that's when he said it he knew that in 10 days time sorry seven days time in seven days time at pentecost this was going to happen and then um i thought of um sort of run out haven't i <laughs> 
I run out of the stone. No, I haven't. There's one more. And guess what? It's in the book of Acts, and it only ever appears in the book of Acts. And we're going to read it, and that's in chapter 20, uh, 23, I think, or 20, is Acts 20. Have I got it written down there? I think it's Acts 20. And those of you who have got red letter Bibles, you already know the verse I'm coming to. And it's amazing that it... Um, got the wrong chapter, haven't I? 23, is it? Oh, well, there's others there too I've just found. It is chapter 20, is it? That's the one I want. There is a couple of more, so we'll leave them out of what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul. I hadn't thought of those. Told him how to, who he was and answered the question and where to go into, into Damascus and so on. But this is one of his great statements and it's in Acts chapter 20 where he talked to the oversight from Ephesus and gave them some incredibly good warnings. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul I'm talking about now said how that you know troubles will come even from within yourself people will rise up to change the word of god so if they did that 2000 years ago what are we what are we facing today 2000 years of people trying to change the word of god and he warned them all about that but then he said quoted this wonderful saying from jesus which you won't find even though you think you would you won't find it in the gospels i have showed you all things verse 35 how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So these beautiful words, I don't know how Luke heard about them, but he heard about them. And he said, this is what Jesus said. And what a wonderful sort of thought to finish on today, that all these fantastic sayings of Jesus are very important. This is how you build your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. You build your walk in the Lord upon him and you get to know his sayings. You get to know them. They become part of your life. Ones like this are oh, what a wonderful... And you find that in life, don't you? If you sort of gimme, 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 it's, you end up not being all that happy because you want everybody to give to you. But if you suddenly turn that around, you know, just lately sort of dealing a little bit with some folk that have come from another part of our fellowship that broke away many, many years ago, and now some of the folk are coming back to us bit of a problem they have I've noticed that when they come into the meeting it's sort of like what can I get out of this meeting how how accurate is this meeting and they sit there in judgment sort of and you're sort of trying to help them and you realize that oh they're only there for themselves they're not there to contribute what can we do for them and if we don't quite perform they don't go any further with it but they've come in with the wrong attitude. Um, we had a brother that came into our... And a lot of people guess what fellowship I'm talking about. A lot of people came into the Geelong Assembly over the last few years from a group in Geelong that we used to be part of over 46 years ago. And one of the brothers, I'd like to really just give his testimony briefly in closing. And his name is Barry Henderson. And here, Lorraine, what Lorraine just said there. When Lorraine was just about to study, uh, or was at the point of studying to be a school teacher, Barry and his wife Jan got married, and they only just got married, and they offered board 
to Lorraine because she was where they were and where she wanted to study. She, they lived out normally on a farm. And Lorraine knocked them back because she thought they've only just got married. Well, the last thing they want is a border. So they were talking about Barry and Jan Henderson. Maybe that indicates straight away that they were very generous. Uh, Lorraine came to the Lord at the end of uh, 1955, I think December 1955, thereabouts, about a month after Janet came to the Lord. And Barry and Jan came to the Lord uh, at the end of 59. And they were in the fellowship for many years and I knew them a little bit, not much. I'd met Barry a few times. But unfortunately, in 1972, there was this split in our fellowship and they went with the people that parted from company with us. And I won't go through his whole life, but um, 11 years ago, sorry, in 2011, I correct that, 2011, we started the fellowship in Geelong. And he had fallen through the cracks a bit with this other fellowship and he hadn't been in fellowship for, I think, nearly 12 years and the system there was, well, again, I don't want to go into too much detail, was that they were not prepared to forgive him. He had made a mistake, but it was that hard line, they wouldn't forgive him. And uh, sort of realised in the end that they weren't going to ever let him come back. And um, he was a friend and had been in partnership with Pastor, no, he's not a pastor now, but he was, Daryl Trelaw, uh, used to be a pastor in Geelong. And they had worked in a, in a business together, both in shoes and Vogue Shoes, actually, well-known was Barry Henderson, and Darrell had his own company. Well, I'm going through all that. But over the years, that sort of lost contact through what I said. And maybe about a bit before that, maybe about 2010 or 2009, Darrell had a job working for the council by this time, and he was pretty high up in management with, uh, pl- uh, what do you call it, town planning. And he didn't normally answer the phone. And um, he was above that. And he happened to be walking through where all the phones were and all the staff was in this country council just outside of Geelong. And he's walking through and every phone's ringing, nobody's answering, he looks around the room and all the staff are on the phone talking to others. And he suddenly thought, oh, I better answer it. So he picks it up and it's Barry Henderson because he recognises his voice. And by the way, Barry had always been fairly well off, well off. His father did well and he did even better. And um, so he's got a little farm just outside of Geelong. Actually, we had, do you remember those pictures of where they caught the trees on fire? Anybody remember that barbecue a few years ago? And they had the barbecue very cleverly under a pine tree. And the whole pine tree caught on fire. But they were able to witness to the fire brigade when they arrived. But anyhow, that's Barry Henderson's farm. And anyhow, he's ringing up the council to Grizzle about the verge where it belongs to the council on the side of his property. And it was a fire hazard. Interesting in what I just said. And um, so he's cutting, you know, what, what are you going to do about it? And Daryl's listening and he's recognising as Barry Henderson. And Darryl, uh, Barry's going on about how bad the council is. And after a while, when he finally stops, Daryl says, why don't you do it? You've got lots of money. Barry was almost speechless. <laughs> how dare they say such a thing to me? But then he suddenly said, oh, by the way, it's Daryl here. Well, that started them having a cup of coffee together now and again. And then when our fellowship started up uh, in 2011, the year before that, uh, one day Daryl said to to Barry, "Um, why don't you come across to Adelaide? Because the Geelong Assembly at the time had been going, wasn't going, and Daryl and Jill were going up to Melbourne, actually. So it wasn't actually an assembly in Geelong at the time until 
Pastor Scott Noble moved over there in about end of January 19, 2011. I get it right. So why don't we go to Woodcroft? Just the two men. We'll fly over to Adelaide. And just us two guys will go along to the meeting. We were in England at the time. Heard about it when we got back. Uh, and I remember I was quite disappointed that I wasn't there when he, or when he came or they came. And Barry said afterwards, he said, you've no idea what it's like to take communion after 12 years. And tried a few Pentecostal churches. It just didn't gel. And, um, and the other thing he said was it was like a great big young people's meeting. That's what it felt like to him. And, uh, and then we came back and found out that he'd been, maybe August or something. Then we found out the two men were going to come over again. The uh, reason I'm saying this is I've got a little bit of time to use up. So I'm not going over time. You know this thing? I'm not going over time. So, um, we started you early. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. And uh, so um, he... Uh, they said he's going to come again, just the two guys. And they came, I think it was November or thereabouts, maybe October 2010. And we were there and we went and had tea together and after the two meetings and sort of touched base again. When the fellowship started, it didn't really happen straight away with Barry. I was sort of wondering, well, you know, it seems you've got nobody else, they don't want him and we want him and it's an open door and so on. And he didn't come for a couple of months. And then I think it was about March 2011, one Sunday, he'd had a few excuses, taking his daughter up to, his granddaughter up to a play in Melbourne or something, a few things. All his excuses had run out. And Jan was actually pushing, even though she was still with the other group, she was pushing for him to come with us. And he was sitting on the edge of the bed and he said to her, well, we've never, ever done anything like this before. We've always done everything together. I feel really bad going off to the Revival Fellowship while you're still going part of the old group. And she just said, go, you need it, go. And he did. And for six years, he already had leukaemia. He'd had leukaemia for about three or four years in his early 70s. And he'd been controlled with with modern drugs. And uh, so I think he's about 77 at this point. And uh, he's um, okay. Some weeks he's like... Unfortunately, many people here today can relate to what I'm saying. It was okay, and other times he wasn't. And um, he um, came into our fellowship in March, that day when Jan said, go. And he just hit the ground running. He never, ever came like, what can you give to me? He immediately hit the ground saying, what can I give to the fellowship? And he loved Bible prophecy. He knew the, the British Israel doctrine and all that to do with historic interpretation of Bible prophecy. He knew all that and he loved all that. And he was the oldest person in the assembly by far, but mainly young people, a lot of young couples from Woodcroft. The, uh, Woodcroft have gone over there and so on. And here's this older man in his late 70s. And for six years until he died, he gave and gave. In actual fact, they miss him greatly. He died towards the end of last year and he died in the Lord, which was great. So I'm finished. I'm out of here. Goodbye.